0: As it currently stands right now, Oregon football's tight end room in spring, yeah, it's not sustainable going forward. Here we go. You are Locked On Ducks, your daily podcast on the Oregon Ducks, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Yes, it is that time. Once again, for On Ducks, I'm your host, Spencer McLaughlin. Thank you so much for making this your first listen or your first view of the day if you're watching on YouTube. Part of the On Podcast Network, your number one source to stay up to date with the Ducks, which is why if you haven't already, you should like, you should comment, you should subscribe wherever you listen to or watch this show. Appreciate all of you who do that great stuff. Basketball talk coming later in today's episode as well. Dana Altman was not in a great mood after season ended on Tuesday night against Wisconsin. I have some some thoughts on that. I don't think it's quite as dramatic as it appears. But the tight end situation for Oregon, Dan Lanning and company going into the spring, kind of is. And right now, Oregon has just three, count them, three scholarship tight ends on the roster. And if you recall, if you listen to me or have for a while and do so regularly, first of all, thank you so much. But you remember that When Maliki Matavau transferred out, that was the transfer that I deemed the most impactful departure from the program. I think you had Dante Thornton in the mix because he could have been poised to take a leap forward, but you bring in Trayshawn Holden. But to this point, Oregon lost two tight ends from the roster last year. They haven't replaced them. They're just rolling forward. Now, they did bring in Kenyon Sadiq, who is an early enrollee, Can you expect a tight end to play as a true freshman? A little bit, yeah. T-Ferg and Montevall both played as true freshmen, and they were both quite good. And then they got better as sophomores. Montevall is now with UCLA, where he probably projects as a number one tight end. Because he wasn't going to beat out T-Ferg, who you all know I'm really high on, and I think he's an absolute stud. But I, I think this could also indicate something depending on how it plays out positionally and whether or not they're able to add somebody that that lends credence to the idea laid out in this question from Eric Lammerman. YouTube comments, Twitter, you know by now. Ask me a question, anything at all. Since we seem to be moving forward with only three scholarship tight ends, doesn't this indicate we'll be moving away from two tight end sets? Didn't Will Stein eschew them and... By, by and large, and make greater use of wide receivers. It's an interesting word. I don't know that I've seen that before. Anyway, why would Lanning hire Stein, whose offense was extremely productive at UTSA, only to have him run Kenny Dillingham's system? Well, I think there, there could be some truth to that idea, depending on what we see with the tight end room going forward. Because with how Oregon used their tight ends in 2022... You cannot have three scholarship tight ends. There were sequences. There were plays. The 14J package, where there were four tight ends on the field at once. Where you had two on one side, one offset, and an H-back, which was usually Patrick Herbert. So you literally cannot do that now if you've got just three scholarship tight ends unless you believe in a walk-on. Or unless you think somebody like Mateo Uyungle, perhaps could take some snaps at tight end and in a jumbo package just to be in there to block. Maybe, maybe, but I saw all of those tight ends catch passes last year. Now, I saw them all line up as, you know, a wide receiver standing up outside, essentially. And I think Kenyon Sadiq is a really intriguing prospect, kind of closer to a wide receiver than a tight end at this point in time, frankly, but still... I think that's the guy who's going to play because he is one of just three scholarship tight ends. It's Patrick Herbert, it's Terrence Ferguson, and it's Kenyon Sadiq. Those are the only three. Now, when you watch Will Stein's offense at UTSA, he did not employ as many two tight end sets. But here's the question, right? Just to kind of play devil's advocate here to your question here, Eric. What if that was personnel based? I haven't studied UTSA's roster, but maybe they didn't have two tight ends that they felt good about. And this is where you're gonna have the interesting back and forth push and pull of a defensive head coach who's not the play caller, obviously on offense, and who is going to, in theory, put more of his attention on the other side of the ball, versus the offensive coordinator, right? How many things is Dan Lanning going to go to Will Stein and say, We did this last year, this is part of what we want to do, what we want to do. As, as a football team because it helps us do this and it works with our personnel and all this sort of stuff, right? It's not like Dan Lanning only recruits defensive players. It's not as if Dan Lanning doesn't think about the offensive side of the ball at all. He may be putting more of his attention to the defense, but he's not as the head football coach, just uninvolved with the offense. That's not a thing. And I, I think that it's easy to get that perception of uh, of coaches at the professional or collegiate level, honestly, where you think, well, you know, he's an offensive head coach, he's not doing this. I mean, Lincoln Riley and Chip Kelly, they're not doing a lot on the defensive side of the ball. All the other head coaches who are not play callers for the offense are doing something on both sides of the ball. So your offensive coordinator is still your most important Offensive coach and and most important hire for Dan Lanning is a guy who comes from the defensive side of the ball, but Lanning and defensive coaches tend to have that you know that physicality grounded pound mindset. Remember, this was a run oriented team, just like they were in 2021. The difference is in 2022, we took downfield shots and threw the ball beyond the line of scrimmage. But it was a run-oriented offense, and I don't think that's an accident, and I don't think Dan Lanning wants that to go away. And we did that, not just out of the 14-J package, but in other sets too, with a lot of two tight end sets. I mean, we'd go five wide, right? We'd go empty for Bo Nix, and you'd have two tight ends on the field, a running back, and two receivers. Now, maybe because of personnel, that ends up being a three-receiver look or a four-receiver look with a running back or a tight end, right? Maybe it's three receivers, a back, and a tight end instead of two, two, and one. Those sorts of tweaks, that's going to be dictated partially by personnel. So I I don't think Will Stein is being brought in and being told what to do, but I don't think Dan Lanning is going to just completely reinvent the wheel in terms of what he wants the offense to look like, how he wants it to operate in 2023, Cause what we did last year worked really, really well. Right? Alabama does a lot of the same stuff. It changes, it varies, there are tweaks, and there are different things that that come about when you hire a new coordinator. And I fully expect Stein to do that. So maybe he doesn't need the tight ends, right? Maybe Will Stein, and, and frankly, I think it's a good thing that at UTSA, he wasn't running a tight end heavy offense. Because with the way Oregon played last year, you can't do it with three scholarship guys. That's just not going to work. You would need all those guys to stay healthy, which becomes less likely when you have to have them play more snaps. You, you can't have you know one guy go down and then have your number three tight end be a walk-on. That, that's just not sustainable, which is why I think a transfer in, in the spring portal window could be possible. It's also why I continue to talk about Deuce Robinson on recruiting segments here on the show. Because either one one of those things pretty much needs to happen for Oregon for them to have sufficient depth at at the tight end position. But right now, they've got six names in there, three scholarship, three walk-on. Talk about what we need from them after we talk about how you need to go check out FanDuel because they're America's number one sports book. The tournament is heating up. Unfortunately, Oregon's not in it. But bunch of other teams are, and new customers. Get a no-sweat first bet up to $1,000. Also, fun fact, as you're listening to or watching this, I'm in Las Vegas watching the tournament sports Sportsbook. Life is good. So you can get bonus bets back, though. If first bet doesn't win, which is uh, an experience I know quite well. Just download the FanDuel Sportsbook app. It's safe, secure, super easy to use, don't miss the chance to get your no-sweat first bet. Up to $1,000 in bonus bets when you go to Fandle.com slash locked on. That's fanduelcom slash locked on to learn more. Make every moment more with Fanduel, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. So it, it, it's a fascinating question. You know, Stein ran a lot of 11 personnel, one back, one tight end, three receivers. Maybe that's the direction they're going. But I don't think landing's going to want to completely abandon the two tight end sets. And you have to be able to rotate guys in, right? We saw so many guys last year because they all had talent, number one. But number two, you got to keep guys fresh, right? Been talking about it and will continue to do so all spring at every position. You can't be one deep anywhere. You got to be at least two deep, maybe sometimes even three deep at a given position. But you got to be at least two deep. And when I say two deep, I mean... This guy versus this guy, not a significant drop-off. That's what you need to be able to have to, to be able to produce. And Oregon, I think, had that last year, right? They went four tight ends deep. They, they had Troy Franklin. They had Dante Thornton. They had Chase Coda. They had Chris Hudson, right? They were deep in wide receiver. They were deep with running backs. Bucky Irving, Noah Whittington, Jordan James just, you just keep going down the list. That's, that's something to always keep in mind, but the tight ends they do have on the roster right now, Terrence Ferguson, Patrick Herbert, Kenyon Sadiq, those are your scholarship tight ends, and then the walk-ons, Peter Burke, who went to Tualatin High School, not far from where I grew up in Lake Oswego, shout out to Tualatin, really nice area, Travis Brashear, great country club, by the way, Tualatin Country Club, fun course to play, not very long, but really fun, Peter Burke, Tualatin, Travis Brashear, and then Landon Shepard, who who transferred from Quincy, which is out in Illinois. So either Deuce Robinson or a transfer would be fitting. But if Oregon doesn't do that, then Will Stein's hand will be forced into, yeah, you got to make it do with almost exclusively 11 personnel means you got to get creative in the red zone, especially because 14J was a great red zone formation for, for the Ducks last year. And I think, you know, and they introduced a lot of wrinkles and I I thought they used that package really, really well for the most part down inside the, the 10 yard line. But if you're going to be spreading people out, you might have to get more creative, but Will Stein did that at UTSA, no reason he couldn't do it at Oregon, but it would be somewhat of a philosophical shift for, for the Ducks in that sense. But T. Ferg is your, is your clear number one. I, I cannot see him not being the number one tight end. Like The, the only scenario, and I guess it would be a good one, if, if Terrence Ferguson weren't the starting tight end going into this year, is if Kenyon Sadiq absolutely kicks butt and takes names. That's the only way. Because I I think Patrick Herbert's a solid backup tight end, H-back sort of guy. I think he needs to get a little bit better as a blocker, but has got some real potential. Has battled injuries, unfortunately, but is still a solid, I think, backup tight end. But T Ferg's a beast. I, I, I continue to stand by my take that that's an NFL tight end. He moves well, he's got great hands, he's a good blocker, he's big, he's physical at the point of attack. I like him. I, I, I really like him. That was, that was one of my better aging takes from last year, that T-Ferg was going to be a beast. And he was a beast all season long. And, and, and frankly, he could be in for a huge year that bumps up his NFL draft stock because he's going to be more a focal point in that position group, right? He won't have Monteval and McCormick competing for catches at the tight end position, right? He'll have Patrick Herbert, who's not as experienced and I don't think quite as good a player, though a solid one, and Kenyon Sadiq, a true freshman, and maybe somebody else they bring in. But all the stuff that went to Montevideo last year, which was a, a solid number of catches, I think he had, mm, I, think, I think he was in like the 16 range, caught a couple touchdowns. That, that's that's all going to T-Ferg now, and I think that... That Bo Nix, I remember that touchdown, Bo Nix threw to T-Ferg in the BYU game. That thing was zipped in there really nicely. Loved that play. But I I think that's, you know, kind of T-Ferg and everybody else can figure it out from there. I think you'd like to have four bodies. Uh, Quick note, speaking of big bodies, before I get to basketball talk for the day. On the offensive line, which I talked about earlier this week. I I message our Locked On Texas Longhorns host, Jonathan Davis, who's great, about Junior Engelau. And I am predicting that Engelau will be the starting right guard this year. I think Jones will be at left and Engelau will be at right. They could be interchangeable in that sense, but it's totally possible. Here's another thing I learned. Because I I, I just sent him a message on Twitter, said, hey, what can you tell me about Engelau? Quote, great human being, always love hearing that. Very strong interior lineman with prototypical size. Brings some positional versatility amongst guard slash center, although I'm sure he prefers to play guard and projects better at that spot. As long as he's fully recovered from the ACL, I expect him to be a plus starter at Oregon. So that's good news as far as his prospects as an offensive lineman go. But that's also good news because what was the other question I was asking just a couple days ago on the show? JPJ is your starting center, but who's backing him up? Looks like it could be Junior Angle out. That, that, that'd be a name to watch. And I again, I know it might sound kind of crazy talking about a backup center. I watched Ryan Walk start several games for Oregon last year, and there was no drop-off. Alex Forsyth missed time. Ryan Walk slid in. Everything was fine. That is a that is something of non-zero importance. You've got to be able, lest I bring up again the twenty fifteen Alamo Bowl. If you don't have a backup center, having a solid reserve offensive lineman is one thing. You've got to have a backup center. That is the quarterback of the offensive line. He's orchestrating everything, making the calls, and he's talking with with Bo Nix about what sort of audibles to make, what sort of checks, how to get into the right protection. A lot of things go into being a center. you got to have a good one. And Angelo having some experience there, I think lends very well for for Oregon's offensive line. So that was notable, and I thought I'd share. All right, let's talk some basketball here. Was there ever a better representation of Oregon's season than that game against Wisconsin? 61-58 to the final. They put up 58 points on their home floor. Disappointing. They had a lead down the stretch. They blew it. Disappointing. Dana Altman was frustrated with how many people came out to the game. There were, I think, over 3,000 there, but he was hoping for more. He was disappointed. Now, here's the thing with Oregon basketball right now. They have not had, for two years in a row, the seasons I'd like them to have. But they are not that far away. Because... When this team plays well, they're really good. We saw them beat Arizona, who lost to Princeton, a sweet 16 team, by default Oregon good enough to be a sweet 16 team, which they absolutely were by the way. 100%. Played UCLA tight, beat Arizona, had a bunch of other quality wins. Like, this was a 22 and 14 basketball team. We are not talking about a 10-win program that has to completely, radically rethink and retool how its roster's put together, what their philosophy is, how they coach, who they coach. They're not that far away, which is perhaps what makes it more frustrating is they give you those glimpses of hope. In their first two games in the NIT, they looked awesome. They, They were way better than UC Irvine, who beat them on that floor earlier this year. So you look at who was playing now versus who wasn't playing then and say, well, maybe injuries played a factor. Yeah, they absolutely did. Keyshawn Bartholomew, good player. Love him off the bench. Prototypical backup point guard. Scores, facilitates a little bit, can get hot. He'd have that microwave ability in 2K. I'm a big fan. And he did announce that he's coming back, which is great. Jermaine Kuznard, they are missing him early in the year. Yeah, that was a big loss. Because then you were turning to guys who were not ready to play. And even in this game, Oregon was consistently playing Gabe Reichel, who works his butt off and has earned the opportunity to be out there on the court and play on national television. But he's a walk-on. He's a walk-on for a reason. He's not supposed to be playing in games that matter. And it's not the first time this year that that's happened. So, the other thing you have to contextualize in in the in the picture of this season is how often Oregon wasn't even close to full strength. I mean, early in the year they had a non-conference matchup with Villanova, and and Gabe Reichel was playing, and Luke War was playing. Like that, th- those are guys that should rarely see the floor if you're going to be a Sweet Sixteen elite eight caliber program which Oregon's capable of being. We know. We've seen it consistently. And the last two years, they haven't gotten there. And now they're not getting there again. And I think that's part of what caused Dana Altman's frustrations to boil over a little bit in the early portion of his post-game press conference. He was not happy. He wasn't happy with how the game went. He wasn't happy that the season was over. And him taking a shot at the number of fans who showed up in that game I think is indicative of one thing very clearly, and it's not that dramatic. This season didn't go the way he wanted it to either. He wanted to make the tournament. He wanted to win games. He wanted to beat Wisconsin. He wanted to keep going. But he was going in there without Will Richardson which is a question I'm going to address on, uh, on, on today's show. Jermaine Kuznard, who we know is good, and Folly Dante's first-team All-Pac-12 center. And then you think back to how the year started when he was having to play without a bunch of guys. No Keyshawn Barthelemy, no Brennan Rigsby for a while, no Jermaine Kuznard. Dante missed a couple of games. Nate Biddle was hurt for a little while. All that sort of stuff combined with the fact that I I think he really realized that the team did not have enough pieces to get where they were capable of going with some of the pieces they do have. And fundamentally, the problem is one that I identified very early in the year. They don't have enough shooting. And if they don't hit their threes, they're not going to win. And guess what? They weren't just six of 21 from three-point land in the loss to Wisconsin, which was infuriating. They were four of 12 at the free throw line. Unacceptable. Don't care who's getting fouled. That's the old Mike Tomlin quote. It's not funny, but it's laughable. So, yeah. I think Dana Altman, and in the latter part portion of the press conference, he'd kind of cooled down a little bit, and I think he realized that he, you know, let his frustrations boil over. But at one point, he he said, "You know, there were enough people here. These guys were playing hard. They're playing a good team in Wisconsin, and we wanted to have more people. And you know, if I'm the problem, then then get me out of here, and I'll go coach JUCO or something." I mean, that's something that he said, and I think that was a heat of the moment frustration moment frustrations boiling over for everything that happened in the season because there were so many frustrating things. Disappointing losses, bad performances, poor shooting, injuries, inconsistency. It's frustrating for us as fans. How frustrating do you think it is for Dana Altman? I think we saw it in that post-game press conference. And you know what? I'm glad. I'm glad he feels that way. I'd be more concerned if if he had this... Happy-go-lucky, ah, well, get him next time sort of attitude. Like, no, I want my coach to be ticked off when he loses. I want it to keep him up at night. I hope Dan Lanning still wakes up in the middle of the night thinking about how he could have beaten Washington and or Oregon State because that's what drives you to be great is that almost maniacal, illogical passion to just win. And I think that's what Dane Altman was showing there. I, I don't think it's more complicated than that. His emotions got the better of him for a little bit. He said things that made you go, whoa, whoa, where, 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 where is that coming from? And by the end, once he'd gotten it out, he kind of realized, yeah, you know, he was joking with the media members, you know, be nice to me in the pieces you write and such. He's frustrated. Of course he is. Look at how the season played out. And it was still filled with 21 victories, which is why we're not moving on from him. I'm not going to advocate that at this point in time. No way. He, he's saying it in a rhetorical manner. I'm not not getting that. Uh, also, quick note. Shout out to uh, Kelly Graves' team. They're still alive in the WNIT as as I record this episode on uh, Tuesday night. Not sure when their next game is. I don't think it's been set yet. But um, they followed rule number one, per our friend Josh Pate over at Late Kick. Don't lose to food. They thumped rice, 78-53. Very simple. You beat him by 25 points. Don't lose to food. They didn't do that. Shout out to Kelly Graves unit. So question came in a while back from John Takeuchi. Hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Hey, Spencer, do you think there's a correlation with how the men's team is doing in the NIT and Richardson not playing? Well, I direct you to the game where Will Richardson didn't play against Wisconsin, where they had a disappointing result in which the offense went quiet. So I think it's about a little bit more than just Will Richardson. But for those couple of games against UC Irvine and UCF, Oregon looked like they were playing some of their best basketball. Worthy of note, those are against two mid-majors and against Wisconsin. They played a lot of great basketball, and then they played some really bad basketball for long enough to where they lost the game. Now, the answer to the question is yes, but... The answer to the question about Will, Richards, Will Richardson is, yeah, I think they started playing better offensively against one team they'd already lost to and a team it feels like they would have lost to at one point in the season without Will there, but not the Will Richardson that we saw early in the season or the Will Richardson that we've seen over the course of his career where he's taking over games, he's dominant, he's scoring, he's you know back-to-back Pac-12 player of the week honors as he was last year. Not that version, but the unfortunate version that we saw for the last couple weeks of the regular season and unfortunately ending his career where he lost his confidence, that guy removing him from the equation because of an injury did I think help the Oregon offense move the basketball better. He's not quick. He's not nimble. He's not twitchy. And if he's not shooting and not being aggressive offensively and using his size to create buckets, he was a ball stopper for the offense. And if he's not going to shoot open threes, when he gets the opportunity, he provides nothing offensively because he, wouldn't, he He refused to shoot. I don't know what it was, but he lost his confidence, and so he refused to shoot. So if you take a guy off the court who refuses to shoot, yeah, your offense is going to improve. Because you put somebody out there who can bring things to the table offensively aside from just being a warm body who's also a good passer. But Will Richardson as a whole, at his best, is a valuable player. But he wasn't that to end his career. And it's disappointing. And he's... It feels like he's just forever going to be a flashpoint for fans of of frustration. Because frankly... The team did kind of embody him the last couple of years. At their peak, really, really good. All-conference caliber player, sweet 16 caliber team. At their worst, he'll go scoreless in a game, and at their worst, they'll lose to mid-majors at home. So yeah, it was. Pro- it's probably a good time to move in a different direction. And, and frankly, with the way Will was playing the last couple weeks, I think there was a solid argument that he should have played less and they should have run more Bartholomew and Kuznard in the backcourt. But Dana Altman recruited Will Richardson, knows him, trusts him, likes him, and, and he was kind of the focal point of the offense. And that's what that's what Dana knew, and I understand why he was playing him and why he had that loyalty, but I do think you saw some things start to open up a little bit. But But make no mistake about it, too. This is not a everything was Will Richardson's fault. It certainly was not. His lower level of play compared to what he's capable of was a reason Oregon struggled down the stretch in the regular season. It was not the only reason because I just watched the team without Will Richardson go out there and take horrible shots, fail to hit threes, and not execute offensively down the stretch. Same sorts of problems. At, At some level, this does come down on Dana. But at some level, players just gotta step up and make plays. I, I mean, down two, Rivaldo Soares forces up a three. Like, dude, that's not what you that's not what you do. He's a less he's a sub 30% three-point shooter this year. That's not your shot. He he was trying to play hero, and you know, Bartholomew took a bad shot, and and Garrier missed a bunny. Oh my gosh, he was wide open. He missed he, he missed a bunny coming down the stretch. All of those guys failed to be at their best when Oregon needed them to be. And, and, and another thing that I think led to Dane Altman's frustrations in that particular game was he didn't have his other primary ball handler out there, right? Like coming into the season, Dane Altman was thinking, okay, I've got three primary ball handlers at the guard position. Will Richardson, Jermaine Kuznar, and Keyshawn Bartholomew. Yeah, he was without two of them. He was having to play a walk-on. And a guy in Tyrone Williams who I I think has some potential. He could be a nice role player. He had a great junior college career, but he hadn't been playing all season. So Dane Altman's playing a guy who hadn't played much all year and a walk-on in Gabe Reichel. That's not where you want to be as a head coach, and it's a frustrating place to be, and it's a frustrating end of the year, and it was a frustrating season that did show a lot of potential. That, that team has got talent, they've got potential, but they've got to be more consistent in the defensive end and not have lapses like they did down the stretch in that Wisconsin game, and they've just got to be a better shooting team. 6-21 of from 3, 4-12 from the free-throw line. That's all you need to know. If you got more questions on, on that, by all means, YouTube comments, Twitter, at Smalls underscore 55 or at Locked on Ducks are the handles. Appreciate everyone listening. Be back tomorrow with my guy Ryan Winter. Have a wonderful rest of your day, and go Ducks.